free therapy, you say, from one of the most well-known psychotherapists out there. It's my pleasure as we welcome Laurie Gottlieb onto this episode of Brilliant Brains with me, Tim Samuels. I feel like therapy is almost like getting a really good second opinion on your life from somebody who is not already in your life. Laurie soothes souls in her weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic magazine and in her best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, as well as detailing what some of her patients are going through, she turns the therapy spotlight on herself. It's a time when she's reeling after the boyfriend she was on track to marry decides, after two years, he doesn't want to raise her young son after all. Everybody really hates the boyfriend, so I really tried to humanize him in there because I don't think he's a douchebag. I think that we both, for for our own reasons, really wanted this relationship to work and for our own reasons also knew that it couldn't and didn't want to bring it up. Well, I'm looking forward to being the one asking a therapist the questions to finally get to the bottom of how endlessly talking about yourself might lead to breakthroughs and hearing just what it takes to get dumped by your therapist. Brilliant Brains is brought to you by Karmacist Supplements, who have some breaking news on saffron you'll want to hear if, like me, you've got lackluster serotonin and are prone to the joys of gloom. In clinical trials, saffron has been shown to raise levels of serotonin, the happy hormone. And as luck would have it, Karmacist feature a patented form of pure saffron in their mood formulation, which has been designed by scientists at Harvard and Stanford. They've also created supplements for immunity, energy, and something to keep those stress levels in check. There's no excuse for moping anymore. Head over to karmacist.com, where you, yes, you can get 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Your serotonin will thank you. Back to Laurie Gottlieb. Laurie, I'd love to kind of just talk to you about the principles of therapy. I mean, I obviously have cycled through many a therapist over the years and uh, I went to try the kind of more hardcore version the kind of psychoanalytic stuff which I really didn't like it was kind of you know where he sits there and doesn't say anything until I do and I I just used to spend ages trying to say like how can you talk to me about the principle of how this works is it that there is repressed stuff that's going to come up and once it comes to the surface we can then sort of digest it and and almost neutralize it is that, but is that, is that sort of the rough idea that we, we carry this kind of re- repressed trauma around? I mean, here's the thing. I One thing I wanted to do, and maybe you should talk to someone, was to debunk the misconceptions about therapy, because I think that that prevents a lot of people from going to talk to someone when maybe they would benefit from it. And so I feel like therapy is almost like getting a really good second opinion on your life from somebody who is not already in your life. And let me just say why that part is important. I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Idiot compassion is what our friends do. So we say, this is what happened with my partner or my boss or my sibling or my best friend or whatever it is, my child, my parent. And we say, yeah, you're right. They were wrong. You know. So we just back up our friend because we think that we're being supportive by backing them up. But if you listen to your friend over time, you might start to hear a pattern like this kind of thing happens to them a lot or it's happened more than once. They have the same kinds of complaints about other people or, you know, relational types of things. And so it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. We don't say that to our friends. That's the idiot compassion. 
What happens in therapy is a therapist will offer wise compassion. We hold up a mirror to you and help you to see yourself in ways that maybe you haven't been willing or able to. And when you can see yourself more clearly, you're able to take responsibility for your role in what is not working in your life, where you're stuck, where these difficulties are, and then you have choices and now you have agency because now you have some control over what direction the next chapter goes in. And so I think that therapy is really a process of editing, like going back to the story, where it's not about you go into therapy, you talk about your childhood ad nauseum and you never leave. I say at the at the very beginning of the book that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. I use my humanity in the room all the time because nobody wants to go to talk to a brick wall. Nobody wants to go to a robot. You want to go to a real live human being where you can get that feedback. And so what therapy does is, you know, I, I, I've been a writer for a long time and I was a writer long before I was a therapist. And I really feel like in that room, I'm an editor and I help people to revise their faulty narratives, their faulty narratives about the other people in their lives and mostly their faulty narratives about themselves that they're carrying around. So I, I get that. And thank you for explaining something in 60 seconds that didn't come out of hours of sitting there and paying someone for it. but. Sometimes, you know, a good therapist will point out perhaps a pattern of behavior that you've fallen into. And you know that. And you can almost see in your analogy, you can see the film, but that doesn't stop you from repeating that pattern. How do you make that jump from, you know, let's say, I know I'm commitment phobic, I know I'm gonna find a, a fault not to be with someone, and you're aware that you're doing that, but you still do it. So there's this saying, insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So you're absolutely right. So the question is, when you come to therapy, you have to be ready to change. And change is hard because with change comes loss. And I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive because often people want to make positive changes and they don't make them. They'd rather stay in the situation that they're in because it feels familiar. And humans don't do well with uncertainty. And so we cling to the familiar, even if the familiar is not serving us, even if the familiar is unpleasant or even miserable. Sometimes it's more comfortable to stay in the familiar. Now, this is not in our awareness. We think we're doing everything to change, but really what we want is we want other people to change. <laughs> we don't really want to make the changes ourselves. And so I think that the resistance to change has to do with really going outside of your comfort zone and mourning the loss of what you have to give up in order to change. And if you don't have some awareness that you are losing something, even if what you're losing is comfort or familiarity, it's going to be even harder to change. There's a chapter in the book called um, How Humans Change, and it goes through sort of all the steps. Change occurs long before the actual change is made. There's a lot of sort of emotional steps that happen, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, before you actually make the change. And the hardest stage of change is maintenance, is once you make a change, how do you maintain that change? And you can see that almost with New Year's resolutions where people say, okay, I'm going to, let's say I'm going to eat better or I'm going to exercise in the new year or I'm going to break up with this person who's not good for me. And then, you know, there's that 3 a.m. in the morning text, right? And oh, you're back together. So what happens there? People say, oh, I, I, I failed because I ate the cake. I got back with the boyfriend. I did whatever I did. I didn't exercise. So I'm just going to go back to my old patterns because I failed at the change. You didn't fail at the change. You're in the maintenance phase. And in the maintenance phase, you're going to regress sometimes, but you just have to keep going back to the change. And that's where people get 
tripped up. And so I think that in therapy, you have to be both vulnerable and accountable. You have to be vulnerable enough to see what your responsibility is for what's not working. And you have to be honest and open and take off the mask, but you also have to make change. So sometimes in therapy, people will say, oh, well, now I understand why I got into that fight with my wife over the weekend. And I'll say, well, that's great, but did you do something different? And they'll say, well, no, I didn't do anything different, but I understand why. And that's a good first step. But if you're not doing something different, you're really wasting your time. So you really have to be accountable in terms of taking action out in the world that is different from what you're already doing. So in the case of the relationship splitting up and you're but you're 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 sending that 3 a.m. text, how do you kind of enact that change if I know I'm doing this and I'm still sending the text? Is it, you know, maybe that you you know, there's just something sort of hardwired in you and you're aware of it, but you can't do anything about it, or you don't feel that you've got the agency to do something about it. Right. Well, I think that people do have the agency, but there's a certain readiness that needs to be there. So you might not be ready that night to make the change, but I think that the more that you start to understand sort of why you're doing that. So, you know, there's a woman in the book who's in her twenties and she keeps dating the wrong guys, but she can't help herself. And, you know, it's this pattern of familiarity that I I think that when people, um, a lot of people say, I'm going to find in a partner something very different from whatever hurt me when I was growing up. And then what happens is they find someone who's very similar, even though that wasn't their intention. The person looked very different on the surface, but Mm. once you get to know that person, it was like a moth to flame. Like that's why you were drawn to that person. And as you start to get healthier emotionally, as you start to understand yourself better, as you start to understand and make peace with whatever happened in the past, you start to orient yourself differently and you start to be attracted to a different kind of person. So you become less attracted to, oh, I want to get back with that person who is not good for me. And there are certain exercises you can do, by the way, to kind of get out of that moment of impulsivity. So that's how therapy can help you too. It can give you very practical tools. What, like, like a cold shower. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there, there are so many things you can do. I mean, you can, you can breathe, you can, you know, just waiting it out for a little bit. Um, you can, um, you know, write down, you know, can write down what you're feeling. You can do something different. You can connect in some ways. Usually you're feeling this loneliness, you know, whenever, whenever we need something to kind of fill that hole in us, whether it's food or alcohol or a bad relationship or whatever it is, um, we find ways to numb out our feelings. And so what we're trying to do in those moments is we are trying to fill out, fill an emptiness or numb out a feeling that we don't want to feel sadness, anxiety, loneliness. And the thing about, about numbing out your feelings is that numbness isn't the absence of feeling. Numbness is a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings. It's this belief that I can't tolerate what I'm feeling right now. So I need to obliterate it with, again, food, alcohol, mindless scrolling through the internet, you know, that 3 a.m. text to the person who's not good for me. But it doesn't get rid of the feeling. That's the problem with that. It actually makes the feeling bigger because now the feeling has been stuffed down and the feeling needs air. Eventually it will come out. It will come out in other ways, in insomnia, in a short-temperedness, in self-sabotage. That's how the feeling comes out. It gets enacted through your behavior. Can you talk me through perhaps a, a case study where you've, you've seen kind of amazing transformation in, in someone's life? Well, I think that's what I, I was trying to do with the people that I follow in, in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. I think they all went through amazing transformations. 
I think one of the most, you know, of, of those, and I should say, I also, I also write about people where the therapy didn't work, where it wasn't mm. successful because I, I think that, you know, it's not like every single person who comes in is going to go through this. They have to really be ready for it. And, and I think that when people come in, I'm not just asking, why are you here? But I want to know why now, why this week, this month, did you pick up the phone and decide to come in and talk to me? Because I'm looking for strengths and one strength is readiness. Are you ready to really do the work? It's not like you're going to come in here and download the problem of the week and leave and come back the next week and download the problem of the week and leave because that's not going to help you. And I just won't work with people like that. That's not, it's not going to be helpful. How often have you sacked clients? Well, I write about one of them in the book where this woman comes in and she's in her twenties and she has a lot of loneliness and sort of relational difficulties with the people at work, for instance, they all, you know, they all go to lunch and they don't invite her, you know, that, you know, there's like sort of a group of peers mm -hmm. and they all, they're not being mean to her. They just, they don't tend to sort of say, Hey, come join us. Right. And, you know, she has, she, she gets in these relationships for a few months and then inevitably the person breaks up with her and she can't figure out why. And, she kind of does with me what she does with the people in her life, which is she is dissatisfied with them. She complains. And so with me, it would be this thing where she would come in every week and tell me, you know, I'm not really helping her. And we would sort of talk about that. And I, you know, therapists go to consultation groups often where we, we present our cases to our colleagues and they give us feedback. And many therapists are in these weekly consultation groups because we work alone and we need feedback. And so I would bring this case to my consultation group and they would give me all kinds of suggestions about how to work with this person. And everything that I tried would just fail miserably. And I felt bad because I really wanted to help her. And, and I think that underneath it all, she was a truly likable person, but she wasn't able to, to let me in in that way, the way she wasn't able to let other people in. And so she came off as very abrasive and very kind of prickly. And, and I couldn't get her to see that what she was doing with me was what she was doing in the outside world, which is what most people come to see is that, you know, therapy is like a microcosm for how we are in the world, but in the safe space of the therapy room, you get to really unpack it and see it so you can change it. And she wasn't able to do that. And so I ended up ending the treatment with her. And, and I felt in the end, like I had failed her, that I felt like if, I had just found a different way in. Well, it's strange because most people I know are desperately worried what their therapists think of them. And, and you, you, as you sit there droning on about your miserable life, you're worried that you, you're boring, you're self-obsessed, <laughs> or that you're, you're showing someone the worst side of you that you wouldn't tell any of your friends and they, and they must be judging you. So um, it's interesting to have someone come in and just say, actually, you're no good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, and I, and I think that I, I wasn't good for her, like for whatever reason, it just, it wasn't, you know, study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of your therapy is your relationship with your therapist. That matters more than the modality they're using, the number of years of training they have, the kind of training they have. All of those things matter. Don't get me wrong. All of those things are extremely important, but they're not as important as the relationship. And this, you have to click with your therapist. And this was not a match. We did not click. And I remember when I was training, um, one of my clinical supervisors said during my internship, she said, there's something likable about everyone. It's your job to find it. And I remember all of us interns were thinking, yeah, no, there, you know, there's not something likable about everyone. But it turns out she was right. That 
there has been something likable about every single person that I have seen if they let me get to know them. If they if they get rid of all the defenses, all the way that they all the ways in which they push you away, you know, the, the ways that they protect themselves. Because behavior is a language too. Behavior is a way of speaking the unspeakable. You can see that with my patient John in the book, who is this very abrasive man in his 40s. He's married with kids. He's very successful in his career. And he is just very difficult to be around because he's insulting. Um, he's He thinks very highly of himself and not so highly of the people around him. We might say he has narcissistic traits. Um, but he ends up becoming the person in the book that I think most people like the most by the end of the book, even though they started off really disliking him in the beginning. And so I think there is something likable about everyone if they let you in, if they take off the mask. But if they're not willing to do that, like with that patient I was just talking about, um, it's hard to get to that place where you can see how likable they are. And I think what's ironic about most of us as we walk around in the world is that we present this version of ourselves that we think is going to be very likable. And yet what connects people most, the glue where people are going to be drawn toward you is your authenticity. The more authentic you are in the world, the more people can relate to you and see the similarities between themselves and you. And that's where these connections are forged. And so I think that the irony is that we put on this, you know, this presentation in the world that is not going to make us the most likable. And being who we truly are, sharing the truth of who we are, is what makes us incredibly likable. But so many of us hide that. A quick word, well, one sentence, from our sponsor, Karmacist. Karmacist supplements don't contain any artificial fillers, preservatives, colours, oxide forms of minerals, or titanium dioxide. Ugh. And they are 100% vegan-friendly. Karmacist.com is where you'll find your supplements and no nasty oxides. From the myriad of patients that you've seen and, and people that have written to you for advice at, at The Atlantic and, and that sort of the pressures that we're under, are there kind of sort of almost categories that when you distill everything, a lot of the issues fall into? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say not just through what I see in the therapy room, but I write a weekly column for The Atlantic called Dear Therapist. And so I get hundreds of letters every week. And you can see these patterns of the kinds of letters that I get. And I also have a new podcast called Dear Therapists. Um, and you can see, again, with all the hundreds of letters that we get every week there, um, you can look at what are people really struggling with. And I think ultimately it comes down to how can I love and be loved? Even if these people are in a, in a good marriage, even if these people are, um, you know, have strong family relationships um, or friendships, I think that at the end of the day, what most people are really struggling with is this question of not only how can I love and be loved by people out in the world, but how can I love and be loved in relation to myself? One of the things that, that I've noticed is that when I, back in pre-COVID days, when I would go and give talks in person, um, you know, I would, I would ask people, I would say, show of hands, who is the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Is it your partner? Lots of hands go up. Is it your best friend? Is it your sibling? Is it your parent? Is it your adult child? Who is it? You get a lot of hands. But the truth is, the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves often isn't kind or true or useful. 
And I had this patient who came to me and she was so self-critical and could not see it. And so I said, I want you to go home and write down everything you say to yourself. Listen for that voice and come back and we'll talk about it next week. And she came back the next week and she said, I am such a bully to myself. I had no idea. And there were things, this like this voice in her head that would say things like she made a, she made a very minor mistake just in the course of her day. And she said, you're such an idiot. You're so stupid. That's what she said to herself. How many of us do that? She woke up in the morning. She said, oh, you look terrible, right? If your friend made the same mistake, you would not think for a second, my friend is an idiot or stupid. It was just like a normal mistake. If your friend woke up and looked the way she looked, you would not think anything of it, right? And so we can be so unkind to ourselves and, and just so inaccurate. We see ourselves through such a distorted lens. And do you, do you think that, that sort of self-criticism or, or, or the difficulty in, in sort of self-love would have, have been as prevalent going back, you know, it, it, several generations or do you think it's kind of been magnified by the world that we live in at the moment well first of all i don't when we say self-love i don't think that we're talking about sort of blindly being like yeah mm. you go girl right yeah. so okay. not, <laughs> that's not, not helpful not being a dick to yourself um, then yeah um right well just just being compassionate um, the way that you would be compassionate with a friend. So it's not that you can't see what needs to be changed. I think that people think that they need to self-flagellate in order to make changes, right? Or they need to self-flagellate in order to succeed or be on their game. But no, um, you actually need to be self-compassionate because having self-compassion for yourself doesn't mean that you don't hold yourself accountable. If you have self-compassion, you will hold yourself more accountable and be more likely to make change because you won't be stuck in, like buried in shame. Mm. When we self-flagellate, we are buried in shame. But we feel so ashamed of our shortcomings. We feel so ashamed of the things that we would like to change that often we are so stuck in shame that we won't even venture out and try to make change. In terms of this, this sort of lack of self-compassion, do you think we've got worse at it? Do you, do you think it's a sort of fairly modern phenomena or do, or do you think it's, it's just true of humans gen, in general? I think there's more comparison going on today than maybe there was in the past because of social media, because of, you know, just all everything that we're exposed to on a minute to minute basis. So I think that, you know, the problem with, with, this comparison is that I think, you know, before we had social media, you might, you might see a neighbor, you might see a friend, whatever it is, and maybe you'd compare yourself in some way, but I don't think we were so preoccupied with our standing compared to other people in the same way. And now I think we are just inundated with images of, you know, what we think other people's lives are like. And all of a sudden we feel like we fall short. We're not as smart. We're not as successful. We're not as beautiful. We're not as whatever. Um, as these images that we're just inundated with all day long. In terms of relationships being um, one of the core planks of you know, perhaps our happiness, do you have any sense of um, what it takes to to make a, a good relationship these days and, and not perhaps be so sort of beholden to the, the pressures that, you know, Hollywood and, and rom-coms and adverts and everything has sort of piled onto us for some sort of idyllic relationship that doesn't exist. What's, is, there, is there a way through that? Well, I think one of the problems that people encounter in relationships that is very much of our time is that we don't have the community around us that we used to that would fulfill a lot of the needs, the relational needs 
that, you know, for community, for friendship, for someone else to talk to. Most people today, they live in, in their in you know the family of the person your your partner and maybe your children and that's your unit. Um, a lot of people aren't living in the same place where they grew up, so they might not have grandparents around or extended family around. Um, people move a lot, so they don't necessarily have roots where they are. Um, and so it's really incumbent. It's really the, the people who are in that little group are the people you rely on, and so you really have one other adult that is expected to fulfill all of these needs for you. They have to rock your world in bed. They have to be your best friend and read your mind and understand you completely. Um, you know, they have to entertain you, <laughs> um, you know, so they have to be like all of these different things to you. And then when we feel some kind of emptiness or lack in our lives, we blame it on our partner or our partnership, our marriage. We say something's not right. I'm, I'm feeling bored in my marriage. I'm feeling lonely in my marriage. Whereas you're really expecting this other person to be so many things that it's not realistic for one human being to be. And that didn't used to happen, right? So so in marriage, it was like, I want to be with someone that I'm compatible with, that I'm in love with, that I truly care about and love and I'm attracted to. But it wasn't that this person had to be the end-all be-all in all these ways in my life for me. And that I'm so massively disappointed when that person isn't. And so a lot of the couples therapy that I do is really this question of what does it mean to, to love somebody? What does that actually mean? And can we, can we really define that? Can you define that in your marriage so that you can understand the ways in which you are loved? Because so many times people can't see how loved they truly are. How has sitting there and hearing or reading all these stories about humans, I guess, in, in pain and, and suffering and confusion, how's that affected you? How's it changed you? I, I think that some people think that the job of a therapist is depressing for that reason. I think they think that what I do all day is I listen to these horrible stories, these very painful stories, and what a drag, right? Um, and that's not what it is at all. I think that I have one of the most hopeful jobs that I can think of, because what I see every day is I see people coming in and saying, I want something to be different. I want things to be better. I want things to change. I want to get unstuck. And I think so much of the time what happens is people come in and they want to say, I want to get to know myself better. And part of getting to know yourself is actually to unknow yourself. It's to let go of the story that you came in with about yourself so that you can free, your, uh, free yourself up to see a different story, right? So a lot of people come in and they're stuck because they're stuck in the story and they can't get on, move on to the next chapter. I think it's so hopeful what I see every day. I see people taking risks, going out of their comfort zone, making substantial changes in their lives, little by little, step by step. It's not like, you know, they, they decide, oh, this is, I see this now and now I'm going to make this change and everything's great. It's these incremental changes, these hundreds of tiny steps that they take to to result in a completely different way of living than than you know in terms of how they felt and and how their lives were you know who who was in their lives the quality of the relationships in their lives there's so much room for that to change and i see it happen every day so for me i when people say how does that affect you i feel like it has made me a more hopeful person and as a 
character in in your own book you know is having gone through this episode where the bloke suddenly noticed that you happen to have a child knocking around the house which you know failed failed to failed to notice for a couple of years and you went through the therapy what as you say were the um the truth bombs that went off for you what did you learn about yourself well i think it's very much about how when we tell our story we leave things in, we leave things out, we emphasize certain aspects of the story. Um, You know, we kind of sometimes aren't clear on who are the major characters and who are the supporting characters and what is everybody's role and is the protagonist moving forward or is the protagonist going in circles, right? All of those things. And I think that my therapist in the very first session when I was going on and on about the boyfriend and what happened and what a terrible person he was and and all of that... um, I I said at one point in that session, I said, and now I'm in my 40s and half my life is over and I have to start all over, you know, finding someone new and he wasted all these years and, you know, of my life and, um, and these really critical years of my life. And the therapist who I call Wendell in the book, he glommed onto that phrase, half my life is over. And he realized right then that that's really why I was there. I was there about this question of what was my life going to look like at this midpoint and at the second half of my life. And it wasn't so much about the boyfriend. The boyfriend was the inciting incident. The boyfriend was the presenting problem, the thing that got me into the therapy room. But as you see, there were a lot of things that I was not willing to look at in my own life that come out piecemeal. They come out bit by bit in my own therapy, things that I wasn't willing to acknowledge to myself and certainly not to my therapist. So, and you see those things come out over time where you, you rationalize it to yourself. Oh, that, that thing's happening in my life, but it's not really a big deal. The big thing here is what happened with the boyfriend, right? And then you start to see, well, wait a minute. It's so much easier to focus on what happened with the boyfriend than to look at these other things that are maybe a little more delicate or tender. Mm. But for all that journey of self-discovery, do, do you still think he's a bit of a douchebag? I don't. I mean, I think it's so funny. Everybody really hates the boyfriend. And I was and in the book, I think he gets really humanized because we start to see, wait a minute, there were these clues. Wait a minute. I didn't acknowledge this. Wait a minute. I was complicit in not talking about this kid issue, um, even though I suspected it in certain ways, but didn't want to look at it. So I really tried to humanize him in there because I don't think he's a douchebag. I think that we both, for, for our own reasons, really wanted this relationship to work. And for our own reasons, also knew that it couldn't and didn't want to bring it up mm. i mean looking ahead what do you think the um, future trends of therapy are do you think there'll be kind of greater involvement of neuroscience where you know maybe you're doing therapy sessions and someone's wearing an eeg cap and it illuminates different parts of the brains and that gives you a kind of an an emotional cue as to as to as to what's going on I think there have been great strides in neuroscience as it relates to mental health. And I I think it's really important for therapists to be aware of, you know, what is going on in the field of neuroscience and how it relates to the work that we do. But I still firmly believe that at the end of the day, that um, relationships are what make us human. And when we are not connected in the world, whatever that means, when I say relationships, I mean that in the broadest sense. Um, You know, I always want to know when people come in, how is your life peopled? Who are the people in your life? And what is the quality of those relationships? And I feel like people, uh, people have some problem in that area that is, that is at the core of what their struggle is. 
And, and so I feel like neuroscience is incredibly important. And I think in, in certain cases, it's, it's extremely important because when we talk about certain things like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or things like that, but when we're talking about sort of the garden variety problems that people come in with, the problems of everyday life, I feel like relationships are really where it's at. Hmm. Um, Laurie Gottlieb, I'm going to end with a couple of quick fire questions. Um, who is your brilliant brain? Who do you look up to and, and take inspiration from? I take inspiration from um, my father who died earlier this year. My father was an incredible man, incredibly wise. Um, and I was so lucky to have been his daughter, but also to have learned from him and his approach to life and the way he thought about things. What, what was particularly inspiring? What, 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 what was he doing in life? What, what did you learn from him? He was so good at doing what I think a lot of us struggle to do, which is to perspective take. Um, he was so good at being able to consider another perspective, whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, to at least get curious about it. He was an incredibly curious person. And I think curiosity is uh, really important in our growing as people. Uh, Laurie, I'm, I'm making you a global dictator. Your your mission is to put therapists out of business and um, increase human happiness and decrease pain at a stroke. What would your first act be? Well, you see, I disagree with the premise. <laughs> and as a dictator, I guess I can do that, uh, which, is, which is that therapy is not just for people who, um, you know, who are struggling. Um, you know, it's kind of like preventative medicine where you don't just go to your doctor when you're sick. You also go because you want to be healthy. And so you need to make sure that you're checking in. So I think that for some people, therapy is a way of checking in and making sure that they stay healthy. So would you make therapy mandatory? No, I wouldn't. Um, but I think that I would want it to be readily available to anybody who wanted to make use of it. So what would your, if you were to try and increase people's net happiness as a dictator, what would you do? I would help to reduce stigma around these issues of getting help for, you know, emotional struggle in any way. You know, it's, it's interesting. We, we have this comparative way. I talk about the hierarchy of pain in the book, and we have this way of comparing our pain with other people's pain. And, and, and we usually say, my pain isn't great enough to go see a therapist. It's almost like if you broke your arm, we don't say, well, somebody else has cancer, so I'm not going to go get a cast for my arm right? Because my pain isn't as bad as their pain. We do that with our emotional health. We say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble in this relationship or yeah, I'm, I'm kind of stuck or I'm feeling anxious or I'm having trouble sleeping, but it's not as bad as somebody else. And we have, you know, whoever you have in your mind. And so I'm not going to go get help. And so people don't come into my office until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack, right? And at that point, not only is it harder to treat, but you've suffered unnecessarily for however many months, right? So, so what I would do is I'd want to sort of take away the stigma and help people to understand that health is health, physical health, emotional health. Um, it's really important that we take care of our health. I can't argue with that. Um, Laurie Gottlieb, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks to Laurie Gottlieb. To hear all 12 episodes of Brilliant Brains, including Harvard scientist Dr. David Sinclair, explain why aging is optional and what he does to stop the body growing old, go to karmacist.com, home of our sponsor. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson 
From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains. Brilliant Brains.